This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeff Klein. I'm the executive director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program. And my co-hosts, <laughs> Mike Yuseem and Ann Greenhall, are here with me via Zoom uh, as we tape this show. Before Hello, Jeff. I want to remind you that new episodes of our show premiere every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern here on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. Uh, Mike. Anne, how are you? I'm doing great. And Anne, what, how about you? I'm also great and happy to be here and talking to our guest. All right. Well, before we get started, Mike, I, I, I had a question for you. And, and um, this is relevant, I think, for the way Anne and I exist in the world. But um, as I looked at uh, the topic of today's show, really, and the 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 history and the life and the influence of economic advisors. Um, it, it occurs to me that I think of you as someone who is sought out for advice uh, <laughs> from time to time. Yeah, <laughs> and um, knowing that one of the keys to um, that advice giving is the confidentiality of the advice, I won't ask you to uh, to to talk about anything in specific, but. When you are in an advice-giving mode, uh, I wonder if there are any principles or any uh, norms that you tend to follow. If someone calls you up and says, Mike, you know what? I'm really trying to think through this problem. Can you, can you give me a hand? Can you help me out? Uh, Jeff, it's a good question because it goes directly into the discussion we're about to have with our distinguished guest. Uh, let me just try a quick statement. Uh, and then maybe Anne would like to draw, uh, add in as well, and certainly in the book of our guests. And that is, uh, you've got to find out what problem is actually being asked about. And it is mm. amazing how often a question comes without it being clear what, what the question is really about. So, and that's not to be critical of the questioner. It is to be almost self-critical uh, in forcing yourself to really clarify what exactly somebody is asking what's the problem you're trying to solve? And why don't you jump on that one too? Yeah, I like that comment, Mike. And I guess I would just add that I often find myself uh, serving as a sounding board. And sometimes when others simply talk out what it is they're thinking, they arrive at the issue, as you've said. They may circle around it and then suddenly land on it. So really all I've done is given someone an occasion to reflect and focus. And Jeff, one final thought uh, from me on this as well. Uh, I I think we, by necessity, have to think through why we're being asked by people that have authority to make a difference. And thus it becomes kind of a calling. We really want to be truthful, fully disclosing, good in guidance, in that the question is not idle, it's not an academic debate. Uh, What is passed from you to the person asking may have consequences for a lot of people, as certainly is the case for the economic advisor to the president. 
All right. Well, thank you, Mike. Thank you, Anne. Hopefully that primed uh, for all our listeners, primed your thinking around uh, seeking and, and giving advice. And, and what we'd like to do now is we'd like to uh, first welcome to our show, uh, Simon Bowmaker. So Simon, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Thank you for having right. me on the, on the program. Of course. Um, and Simon, <clears throat> you are uh, the author of a very interesting book. Well, a couple interesting books, but the one we're focused on today is When the President Calls, Conversations with Economic Policymakers. And, and within the book, you really take a look at the, the role and, and the personalities which have uh, played this role of economic advisor to, to presidents since uh, Nixon. Mm. And, and uh, I'm going to say a, mo- uh, a few more words about you in a moment, um, but why the interest in economic advisors, especially over this uh, you know, long period of mm. time? So you mentioned, you know, another book I've done. I've done uh, two previous interview-based books. Um, so a couple of books ago, I did a book on uh, how people teach economics. So I went around the country and interviewed sort of relatively well-known economists about how they teach economics. And then I did a book on how people do research in economics. So I sort of interviewed I think it was 25 well-known economists working academia and asking them about their, their daily lives as researchers in universities and, and how that process fits together. So, so the natural thing to do next was to say, well, look, one thing economists also do apart from teaching and, and research is they work in policy. So mm-hmm. that was the natural progression. Um, so I thought, right, I'll, I'll call up the people who you know, got called up by the president uh, to go to Washington and to sort of get a get a feel of what that experience is like from going from, for the most part, going from academia um, into the Oval Office, which is obviously a very big uh, big transition. Yeah. Um, so that's how the book book came about. That was the interest. Right. Thank you. And 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 I should mention as we introduce you to our guest uh, that you are also someone teaching economics. You're clearly I am indeed. Economics <laughs> at NYU's Stern School of Business. Correct. Uh, we could have taken a big left turn if I would have introduced you as one of America's top chefs. Um, <laughs> That's right. But, but, but we'll, we'll stay with the economic yeah. focus here. So I can't cook. <laughs> Believe me, I've been, in, I've been in lockdown for 60 days and Uber Eats is getting a lot of business from me. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess there, there is uh, no better time than right now to really truly assess your yeah. skills, right? Um, so you teach economics in the undergraduate uh, and full-time, part-time, and executive MBA yeah, programs absolutely. Uh, at Stern, uh, named to poets and quants, uh, listed mm-hmm. the undergraduate business professors. And um, uh, as you, so let, let, we'll stay with this sort of topic of economics. I, I'd be curious, what drew you to economics? Um, where do your own interests ah. as as they then branch out? And, and look at the the kind of research you're doing. Mm. So I think I, you know, I, I started to teach economics 20 years ago, but I was exposed to economics when I was, uh, I think, 14. So I've been doing economics for 35 years now. And I think what really struck me about it was just, it was the first subject at school which 
I could take from the classroom to the real world. I think that's, you know, relative to the other subjects I was doing, um, I, ju I just found it very, um, you know, applicable to things I was reading in the, in the newspapers as a young, young kid, uh, things I was seeing on TV. Um, so as I say, I, I was drawn to that, you know, that real world application of, of a particular, particular subject. Got it. And, um, well, Mike, let me, uh, turn it over to you. Let, so, let's get uh, Simon, thank you for being on the program. And mm. I was riveted by your book for many reasons. And <laughs> the fact that, uh, it's a, a kind of an insider's account of how it really works. Yes. So you're in the room, you're with the president, you're mm. with the economic advisors from your conversations with them. Mm. And just to get a dialogue going on that, what, what struck you as the most interesting and maybe counterintuitive or surprising discovery about how the economic advice of the president renders economic advice? I think the thing that struck me the most is a couple of things. Number one was... A lot of these individuals, when they took up these positions, I was expecting them to tell me, you know, they knew from the get-go how it was going to be and they knew exactly what they were doing. And in fact, a lot of the people I spoke to in the book, if not all of them, really struggled when they first got to Washington to know exactly what they were doing. And they were finding themselves in positions uh, where they were, you know, quite frankly, sort of outside of their area of expertise. And so there was a very, very steep learning curve. I think that's the first thing I would say. That, that surprised me. Um, it wasn't a case of just saying, okay, oh, this is, I'm sure this is going to be a great job. I'll do it. And you know straight away what's going on. They, they had to struggle quite a lot initially. Um, second thing was I was quite surprised that they, they sought advice before they took the jobs um, from people from both sides of the aisle. So I was understand, you know, my understanding coming in was maybe if I'm a Democrat, I'm a Treasury Secretary, I'll only speak to people who are Democrats for advice before I get the job. That's not true. They'd reach out to people who were Republicans. And once they were in the job, um, they were always on the phone to people, you know, past Treasury uh, Secretaries or council advisors um, from both sides of the aisle to make sure they got as much uh, information as possible, diversity of views, so to speak. So that surprised me. So let me ask, uh, in a sense, another variant of the question. Uh, you're probably the world's reigning expert now in this topic because you've talked <laughs> every living person has uh, had this role. And let's say uh, President Trump decides to bring in a new economic advisor, mm. and that person, before taking the job, calls you up. And what advice would you have, first of all, should the person take the job? And then secondly, how should they behave in the job? So should they take the job? Yes. Um, well, I have sort of like a, a biased sample because uh, I had, you know, I called up 35 people who said, I said yes. And they loved it. They had a, they had a great experience. It was exhilarating. Um, but of course... There's a bunch of people out there who turned down the president uh, to, to go and go to Washington and actually turned down me and said, I'd rather not talk about my experience with you. Um, so at least based upon the people I spoke with, 
I would say yes. Um, but I would also say if I had the, you know, the chance to speak to the advisor, that perhaps based upon what I, you know, my understanding from my, my work with the book and what I'm seeing going on with the, the Trump administration is this is a very different situation. Um, this is not necessarily, for example, a council of economic advisors that we've seen for the last 74 years. Uh, with Trump, um, that organization seems to be changing somewhat. Um, it's becoming a little bit more partisan. The politics have been now involved now in, in giving economic advice. Um, the, the advice that you might have to give is potentially less objective. It's less what we call unvarnished. Okay, so, you know, you mentioned being an economic advisor. If you're working for the Council of Economic Advisors, um, your job is to be impartial. As I say, to provide that objective, uh, unvarnished advice. And right now, if you're working for Trump, you might have to relax that. Yeah, great. That's the impression I'm being given. So thank you, Annette. Jeff, I think you want to retrieve the baton for a moment here, and I'll yield it to you. It's, it's amazing, Mike. Uh, <laughs> just My timing. You think he'd, he'd yeah. think he'd been host before. <laughs> so I'll remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein. I'm joined by Mike Useem and Ann Greenhall, my colleagues in leadership at the Wharton School. And our guest today is NYU professor Simon Bowmaker, who is author of When the President Calls, Conversations with Economic Policymakers. Anne, over to you. Right, very good. Well, Mike, when you asked that question of Simon, what would you advise? I thought uh, Simon's answer was going to be a variation on a recurring theme on the show. And that is, first of all, be a student of leadership and read my book. <laughs> Number one, read the book. Yeah, <laughs> be, prepared. Right, right. be prepared. This is going to be a stretch experience. Mm. And finally, make sure you get some good coaching from both sides of the aisle. So, mm. you know, really, really wonderful warm up here. I'm. I just. I'm just going to follow one thread that Jeff started. I can't resist. Uh, I have a hunch that all academic writing even though it may be very um, objective, nonetheless, in, to some degree, is autobiographical. So I'm wondering if your interest in researching the teaching of economics, researching economics, mm. and advising mm. as an economist, does that come out of your own biography? I, yeah, I don't, I don't know why that is. I just... Um... I guess I've, I've always been interested in uh, reading biography and reading autobiography, even as a, as a, as a child, that, that interested me. And uh, you know, not just in economics, I'm you know, very interested in sports and music, and I read a lot of biographies in, in, in those fields too. Um, but I just think there's something to, you know, I, I like going to meet economists and putting a, a tape recorder in front of them. And, and just posing those questions and getting them to speak, I, I just get a, a big kick out of that. Um, I don't think as many of us do this necessarily in, in economics. Um, I, well, I think it's probably growing with, with podcasts, but it's just something I wish to uh, explore a little bit further as well. Yeah. 
Well, uh, maybe just one more question, Simon. In in writing the book, it dawned on me that mm. you had at least two choices. Mm. One was to go by uh, biography, one after the other, as you as you did, or mm. you could have interviewed everyone, and then written a more uh, sort of top down, analytical, um, <laughs> book with yeah. various advisors as illustration. So I'm just wondering if you toyed with that, um, you know, those various ways of organizing the book and then ultimately landed on the biography. Yeah, so I, I definitely, you know, based upon the, the previous two books, it was definitely gonna be, you know, um, picking the people I wanted to speak with, picking the particular administrations. Um, I think my main, problem in terms of the structure of the book that I mm -hmm. sort of had was bothering me, bothering me was, for example, say Larry Summers. Larry Summers mm -hmm. has worked for uh, both Clinton and Obama. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't quite sure where someone like Larry Summers should fit in the book. Should he go into yeah. the Clinton administration or should he go into the Obama administration? And the same with somebody like uh, Gene Sperling, who I believe went to actually... Uh, Gene was at Wharton, I think, for, for a bit. Um, so that was my main problem in terms of organization and structure. Where would I actually put these individuals who'd served in more than one administration? And if I may, just one more. Did you have a set interview script for each? A hundred percent. Oh, you did. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I, I think the interviewees appreciate that to, to a large extent. Um, Almost all of them had read the questions beforehand. Many of them had sort of made notes beforehand of the questions. Um, almost all of them made edits to their interviews as well. So what, what you see in the book, you know, is 90% is what they said, but there's also a few things which they, they made edits to, you know, in writing. Oh, very good. Well, thank you, Jeff. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Anne. And Simon, what, what I'd love to do now in the... the minutes we have before our break um, is, is I'd like to start to um, shape some of the contours of the, the economic debate that's out there right now. You, mm. you, you talk about and write about both in the book as, well as other writings, the, the ways in which um, partisanship or politics intersect mm. with economics. Mm. And, and when you look at, at some of the major economic debates in the country right now, are there are there partisan splits, partisan lines, or is it really a more um, situational set of differences depending on the issues? What do you mean by situational differences? What, what, are, you, what are you getting at with that? What <clears throat> well, is, is it more issue-based or scenario-based that would predict you know, partisan differences around a particular economic interest, or are there fundamental philosophical differences that would undergird either the Republican or the Democratic Party? I think right now, uh, the major problem economists are having, um, economists right now, the way I'm reading it is, they're pretty much on the same page in terms of what's happening with this crisis. So the majority of economists that I know, whether they're to the left or to the right, believe we should save public health, save people's lives, get people healthy, Mm -hmm. And then we save the economy, all right? And the majority of economists that I know, 
don't believe there's a trade-off between lives and the economy, or between the li- between lives and GDP. All right, and that's that's not a non-partisan issue. Um, I think where today the debate and the controversy is is how the Trump administration economists are portraying themselves, which is very different to how, you know, you asked me earlier, giving advice to someone going into the White House as an economist. I think a lot of people, a lot of economists would be very, very uncomfortable these days working in administration where you're having to give, if you like, varnished advice. And varnished here is meaning... Um, you're taking into account the politics and the fact that we have an election coming up in November. So that, to me, is 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 the controversy. That's the debate. It's less about philosophy, all right? It's le- it's more about what's going on in the Trump administration. And you know, in the book, you're you're describing decades of experience that economic advisors have have had. When do you start to see a shift uh, to a more politically influenced econ- you know, set of economic advice? Um, is, is it really within this administration? Are there um, harbingers of it in the past? So one thing that, you know, you asked me what surprised me earlier. Um, it seemed to me, you know, I'd gone through the nine administrations, uh, you know, by and large, the presidents have pretty much always said to the advisors, look, leave the politics to me. Your job is to give me the economics, right? Leave the politics to me. And I, I, I feel as if there's been a structural break um, only during the, the, the Trump administration. I, I think there's certain things coming out um, of the Council of Economic Advisors, which we simply wouldn't have seen in the past 70 plus years. I mean, of course, you know, you could, you could talk about examples of where the presidents had politics in mind, they had votes in mind, but by and large, the economists keep out of the politics. And I don't think that's happening today. All right. And um, maybe one final question from me here. Um, when you look back, you know, uh, uh, across the set of interviews that you did, mm. highlight one of the times when great economic advice, sound economic advice, <laughs> difference for the, the president, the policymakers? I mean, what's an example when the, the economic advisors, you know, yeah. ride into the rescue? So that's actually a question I would pose to, to my interviewees. So when, when, when did you make a difference? And they always, this is, this is a very common answer throughout the book, um, I mean, you can talk about the impact of economic advice during the last crisis, you know, yeah. more than a decade ago now. But they pretty much always said to me, it's shooting bad, it's shooting down, it's killing bad ideas. Bad ideas that you and I don't even get to hear about. <laughs> right. wow. So that, that's kind of one of the, the major roles of an economist in Washington. Um, it's It's putting to bed, you know, really, really, uh, bad, unhelpful, inefficient policy pr- proposals that you and I as a general public never even hear about, thanks to the economists. Uh, so that, that's, that, that's my answer there. That's a little bit probably not what you expect, but that's, that's typically what I heard from, from my interviewees. 
Now, I, I love that statement, and it mirrors something we've heard uh, our friend Mike Yusim say on this show a lot, and that mm-hmm. is that often, um, you know, when, when in executive roles, mm-hmm. most of the easy problems have been solved well before they get to you. And so it's really the difficult problems, and it sounds like the, the Simon corollary to Mike's statement will be, mm-hmm. The difficult problems, which often come with some pretty bad solutions to them, have to be able to sift through those mm. with, uh, you know, the kind of advice that we're talking about. Today, we're talking to NYU economics professor Simon Bowmaker, his book, When the President Calls, Conversations with Economic Policymakers. Mike, do you want to get us started? Yeah, Simon, I'm going to ask a question kind of close in to what it means to be an advisor and how it actually feels I asked the question because I had a long conversation with a speechwriter for a U.S. senator, <clears throat> and the speechwriter, of course, wrote a speech, or at least wrote, wrote a draft of a speech, and uh, in this case, he was thrilled when some of it, sometimes more than some, but sometimes none of the speech as written got into what the senator actually said. Mm. So if you're uh, an advisor to the president, uh, how do you know or how do you feel or how does it um, kind of play out that you learned that the president took your advice or did not take your advice? How how do you know when it works? So that was one of the frustrations that came across uh, from my, my interviews in the book. But I think one thing they said to me uh, was, as le- you know, as long as I got what we call a respectful hearing, I was happy. Yeah, that was very, very important to them. So, you know, you're working incredibly hard uh, as an economist in Washington. Uh, you know, the, the time pressure is incredible. That the, the media are quite intrusive. You know, that they're pouncing on on, on your missteps, etc. It, it's it's tough. Um, but, it, you know, as long as I got that respectful hearing, I could feel I was relatively satisfied with, with what I was doing. Yeah. And I've got a follow-on question on that. Mm. Implicit and occasionally explicit in your account mm. is the ability of an advisor to advise in a way that the recipient's going to hear it. Presidents operate differently. Their intellectual interest varies a lot in a given topic. And going back to uh, Jeff's uh, indication before we took the break of looking for uh, maybe an illustration or two, who would you say of the people that you spent time with, uh, with the benefit of their own reflections, uh, had really mastered the art of how to communicate to the president something that they would actually then take in? So all of the the advisors I spoke with, um, stress the point that before you actually take the position, or certainly very early on in the position, you have to figure out how does the, the, the so-called leader, how does the president best absorb information? So, mm-hmm. for example, um, is it through discussions? Is it through reading? Um, is it through, you know, talking through issues during a football game? Um, can he read graphs? Does he like history? Um, can he read data? <laughs> okay, so all of those things. Um, I mean, I think it's going to be hard for me to say there, were, there was one particular advisor who was particularly skilled at figuring that out relative to others. Um, but certainly all of the people I spoke with 
uh, made an effort to figure out what was the, the best way of, of, you know, finding out uh, how the president likes to receive advice. That was very, very important. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And we all kind of face it. We, we communicate with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And intuitively, we do learn that some people like graphs, some people want a phone mm -hmm. call. And that sounds like part of the art of, um, of advising successfully uh, your mm -hmm. president. What do you think on the flip side of that? What does not work from talking with these people as well? What have they found uh, kind of puts them into a cul-de-sac or it's kind of a dead end or they get thrown out of the office? What do you think? Well, usually <laughs> it's discussing politics. They don't like that. Yeah. Right. You leave the politics to me. I'll, you're right. Uh, you do the economics. I'll do the politics. I, I don't think, you know, for example, I was told that George Bush, George Bush 43, was obviously a history major. And apparently, you know, graphs didn't necessarily resonate with him too well. Um, he wasn't into accounting identities as well. Um, so you have to be careful with that. Bill Clinton was a big reader. So that would work with him, but it might not work with somebody else. Mm. Obama wasn't into, you know, very, very sort of long-winded, incredibly long PowerPoint presentations. Um, again, we'll have to understand that these individuals have a, very, very, <laughs> a lot of demands on their time. Um, so it depended upon the president, I would, I would say. So last quick question for me, and then over to Anne. You're advising the president, but in the background, also advising the president is the chief of staff, and of particular interest here is the treasury secretary. Mm. So we know this. If you walk in and say, Mr. President, you should do this, mm. treasury secretary shows up 10 minutes later and says, that's a really stupid idea. Mm. Uh, your advice is for not. So... In coming into the White House, again, if somebody calls you up and says, what should be my relationship with the chief of staff, number one, and the secretary of the treasury, number two, what, what advice would you have? Ah, well, it's quite interesting because one of the people that I, I spoke with, Mick Mulvaney, was the director of the OMB and then became chief of staff, as you know, uh, which, which was kind of like an interesting flip. I got the impression through talking to, to some people who had problems within the White House that, you know, obviously personalities matter and you're going to have to try and find a way to get on particularly well with, with someone like the, the chief of staff and the people who are close to the president. And one way to do so is actually a lot of people get involved with the president during his campaign. That's where the relationships get formed and that's where you tend to be the most impactful once you actually come to the White House. So I think people found it difficult when they came, for example, halfway through and relationships had already been formed and the chief of staff didn't know them particularly well. But if you'd known them way back, it was, it was much easier. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it's a very personal business at the end of the day. Mm. Uh, Anne, I'm going to yield the floor yeah. to you. Oh, thank you, Mike. Uh, well, so far, Simon, I'm hearing that uh, an economic advisor considers himself, herself successful mm. if he's heard and if he's able to shoot down some bad ideas. Sure. So can you give us an example of a really bad idea that never made it to the public's ears? Yeah, so there was one given by uh, Glenn Hubbard, 
who was chair of the Council of Econ Advisors for Bush 43, which is where you're going to guarantee the 401k plans if they go down, which to an economist is a really, really bad idea because that would kind of incentivize, you probably tell what's going to happen here, mm-hmm. you would incentivize the wrong kind of behavior, incentivize a lot of speculation. So that was one which uh, Glenn Hubbard told me about, which was, which was shut down. That was almost 20 years ago now. And is there, you know, I noticed in your book that you were able to interview various numbers of economic advisors by administration. Mm. Is there a sort of uh, historic rule of thumb on the number of economic advisors that a, a president uh, calls calls upon? So we've had the Council of Economic Advisors since 1946. So I think in my, my book, I, I focused upon Treasury. Uh, National Economic Council, OMB, mm-hmm. and the, the council itself. So we've had the council since 1946. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had the NEC from 1992, 93 through Clinton. Um, Treasury and OMB have been, a long, been around a long time as well, of course. I mean, a lot of it depends upon the extent to which the, the president wants to make use of economic advice. I mean, how many advisors do you want to bring to the table? And that yeah. depends upon how valuable the, the, the president thinks economists are. Mm-hmm. How, do you see, how do you see President Trump in this regard? Mm. Well, the first thing he did when he came to, came to power was to uh, demote the, the role of the, the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. So Obama had made that person cabinet-level status, and now Trump right. demoted it. I think a lot of people would argue the reason why Trump doesn't appear, at least, to necessarily value economists is because maybe they have views which are not uh, convenient for him. Yeah. Views on, for example, trade, views on immigration come to mind. Right. Um, I mean, you know, I spoke to Kevin Hassett, who you're hearing a lot about mm-hmm. at the moment, mm-hmm. and Mick Mulvaney. And, you know, Kevin had said to me that, you know, Trump really does value economists. Um, you know, he's been pleasantly surprised about that. But I think if you look from the outside, that doesn't see, seem to be the case. All right. As you, and I know this is a difficult question, but just curious mm. from your knowledge of history, if you look forward, do you see this as a pivot point in the way in which economic advisors are called upon? Or do you mm. imagine that we might uh, pick up the thread of past I'm going to be uh, optimistic. I'm okay. going to be optimistic mm-hmm. that if we if you go back to something that we we had in the past, I think we'll have the the you know uh, what I've seen over the last fifty years in in my book. I'm I'm optimistic on that in that respect. Good, thank you, Jeff. All right, let me remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM one thirty two. I'm your host, Jeff Klein. Our guest today is Simon Bowmaker, who is the clinical professor of economics at NYU's Stern School of Business and the author of When the President Calls, Conversations with Economic Policymakers. Um, Simon, I, I want to um, maybe abstract up a little. And, mm. and I, one of the things that we talked about in the first half of the show um, that you were noting was really the, the steep learning curve. Mm. So many of the economic advisors, they moved into a role advising the president um, uh, and and being in the White House. 
and, and it, it's really curious, and I, I, I wonder, um, I mean, it's not curious that there'd be a learning curve. Clearly, they're in a new setting. Um, but I'm curious about the if there are any steps, if there are any recommendations that come out of your interviews for people who are expert in one domain and mm. into a, a completely new setting where they they really are, you know, kind of right at the edge of their, um, you know, e- either their knowledge or their experience. Mm. How did how did you find that these economic advisors, you know, best made that transition? So, one way to think of that question is, that, you know, there's a couple of people in that book said to me the best piece of advice that they could give was when you get to Washington, stay in your own lane. Mm. So that's, that's, that's a very important thing to do. So if someone's asking you about advice outside of your area of expertise, so for example, if you're working in economics and it gets into something to do with, say, strategy or something to do with politics, mm-hmm. you should be staying out. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, you know, as Eddie Lazier who was the, the chair for uh, the council for Bush 43, said to me, you know, if the president asks you about something in your particular field of economics, you can't say, you know, I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that question. You know, you have to find an answer. So getting an answer means you have to call up all of the people that you possibly know in the profession from both sides of the aisle and get an answer as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, the answer there is, you know, staying in your lane means if I'm an economist, I stick to the economics. Yeah. I don't venture out into other areas, you know, so, 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 you know, social areas or strategy or politics or health, whatever it is. Well, and, and let me ask you a related question because I, mm. I, I feel like, and, and certainly this isn't the, the only time in um, American history or world history that this has happened, but there are some prominent public economists who mm. have a public profile, you know, I think of someone like uh, Paul Krugman, for instance. Of course. What role do they play in in both shaping the debate and and shaping some of the solutions um, more now in, in the public discourse as opposed to in the in the policy making that's happening at the White House? So I think one or two economists in the profession become a little bit dispirited that certain public figures in economics venture out into economics and start talking about things like politics. Mm-hmm. I have heard that. Um, an example, if you read my interview with, with Glenn Hubbard, I mean, he's implicitly talking about, you know, people who write uh, in newspapers and they're, they're getting out of their expertise, which is, which is economics. But I think overall, you'd have to say they, you know, someone like Paul Krugman does um, play a very, very important role in, in, uh, in economics in this, in this country right now. He's, he's educating the public. He has a lot of readers. He is a brilliant economist. Uh, people are learning from him. Mm-hmm. Um, people, you know, hopefully are able to um, make more informed choices in terms of voting decisions based upon the information he gives them. So I think it's, it, it's a very, very important role, someone like him plays. And uh, I, I imagine you're having this experience as you interact, interact with the undergraduates and the, mm. the graduate students at NYU. Mm. Uh, the world that we live in and the decision-making processes that, that businesses, that organizations are going for mm. are, 
more and more supported by by data, by analytics, by some of the um, you know some of the techniques which have been economics for for you know a century or more. How do you see the role of quantitative analysis? Of oh wow, <laughs> you're asking. Yeah, in so that, that's probably a, be, a, a question, you know, best addressed to, to some of my colleagues at Stone who are working with the big data, as, as they say. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's that's really not a field that I'm 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 terribly familiar with. But I mean, the, you know, the, the point is, you know, quantitative economics these days is is on an uptrend. There's there's, there's yeah. no doubt about that. And in I fact, the, co- the courses we're offering, the courses we're offering to the students these days are, you know, particularly quant driven and, and quant heavy. Absolutely. If I'm not mistaken, Simon, I think you just stayed in your lane. I did stay in your lane. You know? <laughs> I learned something from my research. <laughs> okay. so I we, didn't we pivot. See it live here. I live didn't pivot. Here. I stayed in my lane. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, Mike, o- over to you for a, a final round of questions. Yeah, uh, Simon, I've got just uh, one final question here. Uh, sure. And it really comes from the fact that we are called leadership in action. And in effect, even though we're talking about advice giving, this really is leadership for the country, mm. but ironically now upwardly directed. We tend to think of leadership as something that people on high um, send directives to those uh, on low. Mm. But in this case, it's somebody working for the president who is helping to lead the president. Mm. The one difference between leading up, if you can borrow that phrase, if I can borrow that phrase, and leading down is that when you lead up, you do have a hazard of maybe having your head handed to yourself on a platter <laughs> if it's not advice well rendered. So the president needs your advice. You're helping him or her make a better decision. Mm. Thinking back across all those you interviewed, what would be your three or four prong line of advice for people who are working for a, a hospital or a community group or a university wow. A business firm. I'm going to go back to, that's out of my lane. I can't give advice to <laughs> I can't give advice to people working for hospitals. Or <laughs> well, think of it this way then. Think of... Uh, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. No, no, I, I totally understand. <laughs> it's okay. But for people who are um, providing advice, even as part of their formal role, or maybe they're brought in to render it as a consultant, mm. what would be your two or three lines of advice for them to make certain that their good advice is is indeed accepted and they're not fired in the process. <laughs> wow. Well, I think we'll, we'll get back to that idea of, you know, figuring out how does the boss in that particular case um, like to absorb, like to have, you know, how to, to receive information. Again, it's this idea of, you know, is it through discussions? Is it through talking on the phone? Is it through writing? Is it through reading? Uh, what is it? I think the importance of, you know, good interpersonal skills, the importance of, of uh, making sure you're a team player. I think most of the people who did particularly well in that book um, when they were in Washington were, were good team players, they had good interpersonal skills. Um, they were very curious. They were very serious. Um, they were focused on doing if you like the right thing rather than the expedient thing, they welcomed ideas. I think that's another thing as well. You, you have to be, you can't necessarily be arrogant and pig-headed as, a, as an advisor. If you're working for someone, you have to, to welcome ideas that you don't necessarily uh, agree with. Uh, that, you know, 
being willing to uh, listen to a diversity of views. Um, and I think the big thing overall was to, to be true to yourself. Hmm. Okay, so finding a way which, uh, you know, of, of, of being true to yourself and being true to your personality. Great, Simon. Thank you. It's a it's a very good summary of. I, <laughs> okay. I, wrote I gave you a few things. I get like a ten. ten no, it, it also says it's Approach. there's not one thing. You you need a half yeah. dozen things, so to speak, to sure. do the role well. Okay, Jeff, back to you. <laughs> Simon, uh, I I find myself wondering. You know, we, we've been talking a lot about the the role of economic advisors. Um, mm. What does an economic advisor do after they've served in the White House? Well, uh, it depends on where you came from in the first place. Got it. So if the majority of people I spoke with in the book were academics. Mm -hmm. So they would go back to their universities um, and carry on with their research, maybe with some new ideas for research, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, Teach, teach some courses which drew upon their uh, experiences in, in Washington. Um, if they were working in the private sector, they might go and you know go back into the private sector. I mean, we talk about this revolving door between Washington and Wall Street. So I mean, that's you know you get people who've been in you know Wall Street, for example, and they go to Washington and they go back to Wall Street again. Um, they might work in law. They might work in business. So there's a, a whole bunch of different places. And uh, I'll just say, forgive me in advance. For <laughs> it's okay. Or parallel. But what does uh, one who researches economic advisors do after their job? <laughs> what do I, do? <laughs> I go on podcasts. That's what I do. <laughs> uh, what do I do? So I guess I have to figure out another, another book. Yeah. That's okay. the next thing I have to do. Um, if you have any ideas, please let me know right now. <laughs> well, well, let me let me ask you: would, would you be interested in advising a president? That was my question. With an English accent. <laughs> that's all right. I, actually, I, I, actually, that's that's happened. There's there's actually one uh, presidential advisor who was British in recent years, a guy called mm -hmm. Martin Bailey. So it has happened. So I'm not. Uh, uh, You're in the running. Not the bard right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's some research that shows that we trust your accent. Yes. <laughs> Maybe that's why I got these people to speak with me. Maybe they trust me. Yeah. yeah. So, well, if, if you don't advise a president, perhaps it'll be a queen or a prime minister. Exactly. When the prime minister calls, it'll be my next book. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Well, um, Simon, we want to say thanks so much for yeah. joining. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. And um, again, the book is when the president's when the president calls conversations with economic policymakers. Um, I imagine that this uh, you know it's available on Amazon. All of our <laughs> um, how else can our listeners uh, stay up to date on what you're up to? Ah, uh, I've got a Twitter Twitter account these days. <laughs> follow me on Twitter. <laughs> Um, you can follow me on LinkedIn. You can follow me on Facebook. It's all out there. Yeah. Right. That sounds great. Thank you so much. Um, Mike, and we have, you know, just a, a moment or two here. Why don't we do a quick uh, whip around and understand 
what's one important point uh, that you're going to take home with you tonight <laughs> and, and really draw into the conversations that you're having over the course of the next week? And why don't you start? All right. Um, although we didn't hit this uh, head on, I think what I'm Im impressed by is how well, the challenge of leading upward and also leading with ambiguous authority, if any authority at all. <laughs> you know, you, you can't tell the president what to do, although you might want to. So how do you persuade the president to at least pitch bad ideas and I hope at, at best really hear and then act on that advice? So I think all of us, no matter where we are in organizations, find ourselves leading without full authority. And so I think there's a lot that Simon has talked about that we can all relate to. Yeah, Jeff, I'm on the same page on that. And so many people that uh, are in the business of working with people, not just below them, but with people above them, mm -hmm. I think would uh, heed Simon's advice along the way that it's a learned skill set on how to take your expertise and communicate it in a way that's effective uh, when you're working up and not just down. And that's because the person above you, whether it's the president or your, or your own immediate boss, they've got five or six other pressures on them, forces around them. You're one uh, um, of those other forces. And it's really important to come to terms with how, the, how your boss or the president thinks uh, what kind of medium do they prefer, PowerPoint or a phone call? Uh, you need to be extremely mindful of the other advisors that they have as well. In this case, if you're with the president, the treasury secretary, uh, OMB, and so on. So it's almost a, a, a textbook account today on how to be effective in the sense that it's got to be learned for leading upwardly. Jeff, over to you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Anne. It's always a pleasure to spend this time for time with you. And I want to thank everyone for joining us. Uh, a special thank you to our guest, Simon Bowmaker. And I'd thank also you. producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. I'm Jeff Klein, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 